Well, happy 2024. Hasn't been many days. Turn with me to Luke 9. You may be looking at your watch and say, boy, what are you doing up there already? Uh, Well, it is a skinny order of worship just for a couple of reasons. Maybe it's a picture for you of... uh, or an illustration, if you made a New Year's resolution to get rid of some of the goodies you ate during the holidays, we have a skinny uh, order of worship today. Really, I'd just been sitting for three months uh, on Sunday morning, so I figured we needed more time. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, in Luke chapter 9, the section we'll be with uh, being... uh, This morning on the message, right after we partake of the Lord's Supper, we begin reading in verse 51. It's a, uh, in the sermon title in your worship guide, a, a definite turn and a crucial commitment. It's a definite turn in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. This is the final journey to Jerusalem. Uh, somewhere most likely in the last year of his ministry. Uh, And Luke has set the stage in chapter 9. We'll come back to that. But I want to read this last section of uh, chapter 9 in Luke, beginning in 51. So Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. It's fit for the kingdom of God. What Luke has done is we were in uh, Luke's first nine chapters before. What we've figured out is Luke is giving an orderly account of the life of the Lord Jesus, and it's not necessarily always in chronological order. He's laying it out with a purpose. And what he does with chapter nine is he sets the stage for Jesus to begin this final Uh, journey to Jerusalem, just going through simply chapter 9, 
the first eight chapters, many miracles, healing, uh, uh, healing diseases, casting out demons, victory over the spirit world, teaching, uh, and then and as he goes through those couple, of, it's a couple of years. Now he is uh, in chapter nine. Luke is laying out the uh, setting for us. Uh, he sends out his twelve apostles. He's named twelve. He's got them. He's trained them, and now he's sending them out. And uh, they return, and when they return, he feeds 5,000 miraculously uh, with the bread and the fish. Then Peter confesses, who do, Jesus says, who do, who's everybody saying we are? Who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So that confession, and Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that confession, and the church. Uh, and uh, so they establish that fact. He, said, he teaches that the disciples must take up their cross and follow him daily. He goes on the top of the mountain and shows James and John and Peter. He kind of unveils his glory for them. In the transfiguration, then he comes down, he heals a boy, he'll rebuke the pride of uh, determining, trying the uh, disciples trying to determine who's the greatest, they ask the question, who's the greatest, and then they get very sectarian, they get very narrow-minded, there's people out there who are casting out uh, who are casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them, and Jesus says, let them go if they're not against us. Or he says there in verse 48, whoever, uh, I'm sorry, it's in 50, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. So that's all the preparation, and now, Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, it's a crucial, if you will, a crucial uh, commitment. It's a, it's a, a, a decision of courage. And from this point on, all the way down to the end of chapter 19, we have... Uh, uh, this journey into Jerusalem, uh, the cross, the shadow of the cross that is uh, coming up is, is, is casting, the cross is casting the shadow on this road to Jerusalem. So all that Luke does from 9 to 19 is to be thought of, is to be studied, is to be considered in light of the cross. Uh, it's uh, so it's a crucial turn. It's the crux. You know, when we say this is the crux of the matter, we're talking about the heart of the matter. It's the cross of the matter. This is uh, why he's here. Uh, there'll be fewer miracles. There are only four miracles in these uh, next 11 chapters or 10 chapters and a little bit. Uh, there'll be much more teaching than what Luke has had. There'll be 17 parables, 15 of them that Luke is the only one who tells the parables. So it's, it's uh, 
a, a, a turn in what Luke does with the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he turns, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, and again, not always chronological, but Luke is making his point. And six different times in these chapters, it's mentioned that he's on his way to Jerusalem, whether it, it says he's going toward Jerusalem uh, or he says to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. We're on the way to Jerusalem. We're near Jerusalem. Uh, so there's that constant reminder that that's the point of these next chapters. Uh, all of it laid out, pointing us to what will happen. And he set his face like a flint. Uh, Clint read Isaiah chapter 50. Surely that is in uh, Luke's mind as he records for us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, intending to be read in light of uh, Isaiah chapter 50, which is a, a servant's song, the servant of the Lord is singing a song, the song. Uh, and uh, we, we read that point where he's made this commitment, he set his face toward Jerusalem, this tenacious resolve, this resolution of purpose. Uh, the servant in Isaiah 50 is facing suffering. So he says, uh, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. I know that I shall not be put to shame. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. The suffering, verse 5 of Isaiah 50, the Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So he sets his face to Jerusalem in the in the prospect of vicious, vicious suffering. And he does it because he's confident the Lord will help him. He's confident that the Lord was near. In Isaiah 50, the Lord God helps me. I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. The Lord helps me. And then he calls on who, those who are listening to him, trust in the name of of the Lord and rely on your God. He knows he will face suffering, but he knows also the Lord will vindicate him. And so Jesus is bracing himself for what he knows is coming. He'll be victimized, he'll be vindicated, and that's his courageous commitment to the Father's will, and for our salvation. You know, I thought about the uh, spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. You know, we all go through things. You know about some of them. We give you prayer requests on some of them, but you don't know it all. Jesus knows it all. But Jesus says, or I say, Nobody knew in chapter 9 the suffering that Jesus knows 
he will face. And he became a model for me in Sufalo as faithful Christian soldiers. And he loves us so. He loves us so much that he set his face. Thomas Bilney, you may not know that name, you might. Uh, part of the small group that sort of lit the fire of the English Reformation in the uh, 16th century. 1528, he was on trial. He had come to faith. He was a Christless preacher in the Anglican church. And he'd come to faith in the Lord Jesus and was converted. And he's on trial because of it. And the uh, Inquisition or the, the, the trial was so intense that they induced him to deny his faith. And they let him go. So he, he avoided being burnt at the stake. Well, Thomas Bilney's conscience tortured him for three years and uh, drove him to despair. And he called his friends together and three years later, you will see me no more. Don't try to stop me. My mind is made up. And so he gives himself over to the authorities. He recants his rejection of his faith in Jesus Christ and claims Christ as his own. He's led out to the pit where they execute these uh, crazy Protestants, uh, the Lollard's pit. And he's led out while he's being led to execution he was quoting Psalm 143 that Corey read. Confessing his sin. Pleading for God's mercy. Thanking God for forgiveness. And there's a unique struggle going on during the execution where the bishop who was presiding over the execution determined the sincerity of Thomas Bilney and tried to free him while Thomas Bilney was determined to be burnt at the stake and re refused any help at all. And that uh, bishop recorded, I fear I've burned Abel and let Cain go free. It's like Paul... Uh, when he stops at the beach on the, uh, after the last journey, he stops on the beach and calls the Ephesian elders down there to the beach, and he says, uh, none of you will see my face again. He's going to Jerusalem after his third journey. And he says, and now, I, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I'm constrained to go. The Spirit of God has bound me up and I have no choice but to go. And so he said, they sail across over to the, uh, uh, Palestine to the west coast in Tyre and uh, his friends meet him on the beach at Tyre and say, do not go to Jerusalem, Paul. Do not go to Jerusalem. 
And he just kind of waves them off, gets back on the boat, goes down to Ptolemaeus and Agabus. If you remember the story, Agabus comes and Agabus takes his belt off and he wraps his hands in his belt and he says, Paul, this is what they're going to do. You're saying you're bound by the Spirit. Well, guess what? You're going to be bound by the Jews when you get to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. I think I would say that. I have had nowhere near come close to being need to need to make that decision. The Lord helped me that I would. And you too. Bilney was converted. Bilney says that the passage that, that broke his heart is, is Paul writing to Timothy, this is a trustworthy statement, worthy of all accept, acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem. John chapter 12, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. A hinge passage in Mark chapter 10 says, I've not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life life a ransom for many. So Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Nothing could stop him from yielding to his father's will. I was reading an a, a essay by Borum who was talking about these who have faced uh, suffering courageously. And he used a phrase and he used it of the Lord Jesus eventually. He says it's cold-blooded courage. Four o'clock in the morning, courage. Courage that's unseen, unheard, unadmired. Courage. And the Lord Jesus knew what he faced. And he was not going to be deterred. It's for you. It was for me. Amazing. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Then what he does after he, he, he's on his way and he sent messengers 52 ahead of him. So he sends some of his people into Samaria uh, to uh, make accommodations or make arrangements for their trip uh, through Samaria. Uh, and he's not received in Samaria. Uh, 52, he sent messengers ahead who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations, but the people did not receive him because the face was set toward Jerusalem. That's very interesting to me. He's not received in Samaria. Of course, where was he received? (laughs) He preaches in his home church. They don't want to hear him. He's kicked out of Galilee. Galilee has no use for him. He's not accepted in Judea. He's ousted from Judea. He goes across uh, the river to the Gerasenes and heals the man who's been uh, possessed by a legion of demons. They wish him out of the country. The Samaritans didn't receive him. Everywhere he went, he was unwelcome. 
But the Samaritans didn't receive him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. They weren't inclined to show hospitality to one who had a temple somewhere else. They had their own temple there on Mount Gerizim. You want to come and spend some time with us and worship with us? Uh, There's a sense in which that's okay, but you're not here for us. You're just passing through. Go on, Jesus. Yeah, he is just passing through. But unlike most Jews, he is passing through Samaria. Most went around Samaria. The light of the world passing through. And these Samaritans at this point missed it completely. They didn't receive him. So James and John, you know, you remember their nickname, Sons of Thunder. Let's call fire down. I mean, Elijah did it. Remember when he fought the prophets of Baal? Caused pour a bunch of water on the altar, and if our God is the true God, he'll lick it up. That happens. Defeats the prophets of Baal. Then just before he's carried up into heaven, the king of uh, Israel sends his posses after him. Ahaziah sends three different posses, 50 each, 50 men each, to uh, kill or invite him back to the king's house. Of course, that's not for tea. That's not for dinner. That's for execution. Uh, The first two, Elijah calls fire down and the 50 are killed. And the second two, the 50 are killed. And the third group comes and he said, please don't kill us like you killed the last two groups. So he shows them mercy in not killing them, but proclaims their uh, final death. So James and John remember Elijah, Elijah and uh, let's call fire down, and Jesus simply rebukes them. But before we're too hard on James and John, let's think just a minute. Verse 54, and when the disciples... When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Um, What James and John wanted to do was wrong. Jesus rebukes them. But what is it that got them all jazzed up? The Lord Jesus was being dishonored by these Samaritans. Uh, before we shake our heads and condemn our heads, what's the matter with James and John? Maybe we can kind of learn a little bit from them. And I just wrote a question. Are you ever upset that the name of Jesus is dishonored? Or do you just walk on by and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that person, with those people, uh, with that Does it ever grate on you enough that you want to call fire down from heaven? Um, But Jesus knew that the Samaritans had an appointment with judgment and that the present day was a day for mercy and salvation, even for Samaritans, rejecting Samaritans. Uh, And eventually, in Acts chapter 8, we'll see as Philip the evangelist goes to Samaria, there's a revival in Samaria. 
And so Jesus says, not today, guys. Uh, You need to think differently. It's not what I've taught you. And they go on to the next village. There's a principle here, just, just as I thought about it. We can have, take a right stand. At this point, James and John are uh, upset because Jesus is being dishonored. That's a right position to hold. But we can wrongly apply it to particular circumstances. We need to hold the truth, but we need to apply the truth correctly in the appropriate circumstances or in the various circumstances that we face. That requires the wisdom of God that we don't have. So we have to ask him. When we have the truth and we stand on the truth and we know we're on the right side of truth, we want to apply it in a compassionate, loving a winning way without compromise. The irony is <laughs> they, re- they would not receive Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. What happened when he got to Jerusalem? His own did not receive him either. Right? But those who did receive him He gave the right to become the children of God. There were some who received him, but his own people did not receive him. Samaritans say, nah, you're on your way to Jerusalem. Go talk to them. Go have a good fellowship with your countrymen. We got there and they rejected him. They didn't receive him either. Jesus simply rebuked James and John. Jesus was rejected by his own for two, I I wrote down two reasons. I'm sure there's more than that. One is because he was a threat to the power of the religious leaders, the powers that be. But the other reason is he refused to be what the masses wanted. They wanted to make him a king. He refused. They wanted him to establish an army, establish the kingdom, get rid of the Romans, and set up David's kingdom. He refused. So they wanted to have nothing to do with him. They did not receive him. And so Jesus rebukes them, moves on to the next village, and then we have this episode, or these episodes with three different folks who are... uh, called to follow Jesus. Verse 57, the first one, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is laying out what it costs, the cost of discipleship. What following him will entail, especially, don't forget, we're in the context of the cross, right? The cost of discipleship taught in in light of the cross. Now, he'll uh, extend these six verses into a longer section in chapter 14, which we'll get to six months from now. But... uh, This is essentially a summary of what he'll say in chapter 14 on the cost of discipleship. 
And his reply to these three may seem harsh if you take them by themselves, uh, but he asks nothing of them that he is not, has not already or is in the process of doing himself. And when Jesus calls people, he speaks to them according to them. What did he say to the rich young ruler? Sell all you have and give it to the poor. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell all you have. How many of you did that before you got saved? No. Jesus was speaking to the rich young ruler. He knew the man's heart. He knew what was the Lord of his life. When Jesus calls us, he calls us who we are and where we are in specific ways. He speaks to us as individuals. He he knows each one of us. And so the first one says, I'll follow you whenever, wherever. Uh, You know, you can imagine this fellow. He's following the crowds. Jesus has had a crowd. Uh, I'll follow you wherever you go. Um, uh, I take part with this crowd here, you know. Uh, um, This is pretty exciting. I've seen the miracles. I've been close to the action. I'll take part in this. I'll have a piece of that. This is really exciting. Uh, And so Jesus really addresses his, I'll use the word naivete. Uh, Think carefully about whatever and whenever. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Uh, Jesus says, look, there's no comforts at home. Foxes have it. Birds have it. You're not going to have it if you follow me. When I was first saved, we were part of a Bible study group. And um, uh, the, the folks who we met in their home had two big circus tents and they were those tents were out almost every week then uh having revivals tent revivals and man was that exciting when they filled these tents up and many people walking down the aisles and fire and brimstone preachers preaching and then after it was all over and we counseled all these people and we got them to pray the prayer and, and, and then everybody went home and we were all tired. Oh, we got to take down this tent. We can't just leave it up. That's where the, well, where's all the romance? Where's all the excitement? Everybody's gone. Left, you know, just a couple of people left to do the work. Jesus isn't being severe. He's not being harsh. He's simply giving this fellow a warning, an honest warning of what it means to follow him. There are difficulties when you want to follow Jesus Christ wherever he wants to go and whatever he wants you to do. I mean, there's great, great blessings, but there's also difficulties. It's a kindness. It's, it's the full gospel, if you will, laying everything out up front, avoids the risk of disillusionment. When trials hit, 
You know, without this openness about the Christian life, without this upfrontness, unmet expectations can lead to twice as much the sons of hell. Isn't that what Jesus told the Pharisees? Woe to you, Pharisees. You cross the seas to make disciples. And yet, because your gospel is false, you make them twice the sons of hell. They, they look at you and you tell them, you need to uh, uh, follow Jesus. And they say, look, I tried that. It didn't work for me. Well, the gospel they heard was a wrong gospel. And when someone thinks they believe in Christ and it doesn't work for them, they're twice as hard to reach with the truth of the gospel. Of course, the Holy Spirit has no problem breaking their hearts. But to listen to you and me as we share the gospel, the credibility goes away. It's much better to count the cost before going than to find out once you go, the cost is too high. Uh, Ask Mark. When you get to heaven, if you're a Christian, you get to heaven and you see Mark. Ask Mark what it's like to go and find out the cost is too high and then come back. It costs Mark years of, as far as we know, fruitful service. Mark, it costs the relationship between Paul and Barnabas that we never see restored. And Mark finally, at the end of Paul's life, becomes useful to Paul again because on the first missionary journey, Mark didn't make it to the first city before he went home. It was too, the cost was too great. That's what a nice gospel does, you know. Believe in Jesus. All your problems will be gone. Uh, the prosperity gospel it may last for a little while, but you see, it's not the truth. And somebody keeps telling me I don't have enough faith when I'm sick or I don't have enough faith when my bank account gets low. That just doesn't jive with what the Scriptures say. So, be careful. Don't be a whatever, whenever without considering the cost. The second one comes, verse uh, 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I, I, I wrote in my notes, this seems like the harshest. Uh, the harshest response. Uh, let me just say up front, and I don't think anybody here would think this, but some people would. Jesus is not saying, Christians, don't go to funerals. Don't bother with funerals. I don't think that's what he's saying, of course. This is a call that is tailor-made to this young man. I'll consider him a young man. Maybe he's not. To his circumstances, to his life. And don't forget the point. Jesus is saying, consider the cost in the light of the cross of following Jesus. We don't want to miss that point. We also don't want to just kind of trivialize the gospel by saying any sense of uh, interest in Jesus means that someone is uh, genuinely saved, has a Christian faith. 
But this reply of Jesus, uh, it might mean, what could it mean? Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, it could mean leave the, uh, leave the physically, it could mean let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Right? Let the dead bury the dead. Let the physically, those who are not saved, uh, uh, you need to go about proclaiming the gospel. Could mean that. Um, It might mean that there's other people in the family who could attend to the funeral services and, and, and you just need to go. The question is, was this man's father dead yet or not? Let the dead bury the dead. Notice what he said. Jesus said to Lord, uh, I'm sorry, verse 59. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Beware the first. But he says, first, let me go bury my father. Is he dead yet or is he not? You're going to have to make that determination. We're not really told. Delray Davis says, I don't think his father died yet. Uh, this man wanted to wait till his father died. First, let me go bury my de- my father. As soon as my father dies, uh, uh, I'll perform this honorable duty of burying my father, and uh, then I'll take off and follow you, Jesus. Could be a, an extended delay. We don't know. Uh, Sproul, on the other hand, says this: his father died, and he wanted to go bury him there ever was a, a, an excuse, this young man, this man, had an excuse. One of the highest family duties is to bury your family member, especially the father in the Jewish uh, culture. This man's ox was truly in the ditch. This is a legitimate duty. Uh, but For this man, Jesus called for a higher priority. Jesus knew this man, and this call was upon this man at this particular time, a higher priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. He says, first, let me go bury my father. Uh, So, To call someone not to go home, Sproul says, to call someone not to go home and bury your father in that context, in that Jewish context, shows us how holy, high, and important the call to follow Jesus is. There's more significance in being called to follow Jesus and to fulfill that call than there is even to bury our own fathers. Well, at least this man's father. There's a sense in which we have to watch our earthly loyalties don't become our idolatries. That our circumstances don't trump... uh, God's call on our life. We have to maintain proper priorities. That's not always easy to do. God first. If you're married, your spouse second. 
then your children. And then somewhere in order, your family, I mean, your job, your church duties, and your hobbies. God, spouse, children, and then the rest. Watch that your earthly loyalties do not become your idolatries. Then the last two verses. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first, there it is again, say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Um, This is just a picture of a divided heart. Let me say farewell to those at home. Interesting, you know, when Elisha is called to follow Elijah, he asks, can I first go say bye to the family? And he's given permission to go say bye to the family. Again, Jesus knew this man's heart. It's divided. I'll follow you, but not today. Maybe tomorrow. I'll give Jesus Christ my all someday. Following Jesus with all my heart and soul is important, but first I need to go get things in order. Jesus is not my top priority. Well, we sing a song, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. If you just wait till everything gets right, uh, it'll never happen. Uh, If you don't want to follow Christ as your top priority in life, he doesn't want to take you as a disciple. Seeking, uh, Edward says, seeking the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. Once you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. It's a disaster for a farmer. If he doesn't keep his eyes focused on the post, on the row, uh, whatever it is that he's marking the row, if he looks back and see how well he's doing back here, it's a disaster for the farmer. Instead of fixing his eyes on the end, this man had made a commitment, but he really hasn't. He left his He hasn't left his affections behind. The cares of the world choke out the commitment that he says that he has. Uh, For this man, saying goodbye was an obstacle to the kingdom, to his kingdom commitment. You know, too many, uh, their devotion to Christ is really just kind of an add-on, but it's not what they're known by. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ should be known as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we do this job, we do that job, we have these families, we have the... So many just want to add Jesus on to uh, their life. But to be a faithful, you know, to be a faithful Christian, surely you've experienced certain things you won't be able to attend, that people want you to attend. Um... And that gets really complicated, especially when it's family. Can't do it sometimes because of our priorities. We can't, but at least we shouldn't capitulate and compromise our priorities. Others won't understand your commitment any more than they uh, understood Jesus' commitment to his heavenly father. Father, following Jesus to Jerusalem ultimately means we follow him to death. 
We either follow him till we die or we, unless he returns before we die. It's a lifelong call. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And he says, consider him so that you don't get weary in well-doing. He's our model. He knew when he set his face what he was going to do. How courageous are you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? I can't make it. I can't last. No. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Him. And then you won't grow weary in well-doing as you follow Him. So just closing, are you a whatever, whenever, Christian, wherever, without counting the cost? If you won't make Jesus your priority, even over your family, this is verse chapter 14. If you won't make Jesus a priority over your family, you cannot be his disciple. If you won't make Jesus, if you won't bear your own cross daily and come after him, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus said. If you won't renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. That may look different for each one of us in our particular situations at times, but are you willing to make the Lord Jesus your top priority? Is your heart solely committed or is your heart divided between the world and Christ? You know, Luke doesn't tell us how they responded. Don't know. You come to Christ, you know how it ends, but you don't know what happens in between. Your future is secure. Your day's hanging by a thread. And you don't know what you're going to face this afternoon or in the morning. But he who endures to the end will be saved. How would you have responded to either one in any one of these? We sang a song back in those tent revival days. I've decided to follow Jesus. We sang that three times, and then we said no turning back twice. And we probably sang it three more times. The world behind me, the cross before me. Eh, you do have to decide. You have to make a choice. Yes, there's some other things that are involved in that choice, but you have to make a choice. There's a better song. We're going to sing 394. What we didn't think about real hard was what we were saying. I've decided to follow Jesus. We try not to sing many songs where we say what we're committed to do. We don't want to make ourselves liars. Be careful when you sing this song, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Better not to sing it than to sing it and not mean it. Andy's going to come and sing. We're just going to sing one, two, and six. I'm sure he was going to tell you that anyway. Uh, Hymn 394, if you get your hymnals. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray...
seriously as we know how that you would make us your disciples. Your spirit compels us. We often resist. Father, the the joys of following Christ are not known until the following is taking place. Lord, help us delight ourselves to delight ourselves in you. Then you give us the desires of our heart. Father, I pray for those who have not started this journey. They have not set their face toward Jerusalem. Father, will you convict them of their sin? Open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ and save them this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.